episode 398 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. We are close to episode 400, and that's a reminder that in two weeks, on March 28th, Monday, we'll be doing episode 400 of this show live with video and chat for our long-suffering audience members who want to tune in at noon Eastern Daylight Time. Uh, so if you want to attend, the details are in the show notes, and we'll include them in our blog posts about the episode. Meanwhile, we're still lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government, and expressing views that are not shared by our institutions, our clients, our family, or our friends. Uh, joining me for the News Roundup, Jane Bambauer, who teaches law at the University of Arizona, David Chris, who was the founder of Culper Partners, Paul Rosenzweig, the founder of Red Branch Consulting, and of course, I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the host and chief provocateur for today's program. Well, I think we're going to have to again start with the way in which the war between Russia and Ukraine uh, is playing out in cyberspace. Paul, it's starting to have direct impact on big social media companies. What's the the status of all that uh, back and forth? Well, you know, it is fascinating. Ten years ago, everybody saw the splinter net of the network coming, but we all thought that it would be the authoritarian countries exiting the network to protect themselves and to control information flows. What's actually turning out to be the case is that the splintering is happening mostly at the behest of Western nations and big tech industries that are responding to, you know, call it economic pressures, call it ethics, call it social pressures, for whatever reason it is, that the big tech companies, Facebook, Meta, sorry, uh, you know, YouTube, all of them, Instagram, are leaving Russia in droves voluntarily, which is a truly surprising turn of events. The effect is going to be the same, which is that slowly but surely, Russians are going to be cut off from a broader network, there, though there are workarounds, and we can talk about those as well. But And Russia is going to respond with its own retaliations. But the genesis of this is quite... So what's happening? Well, let's start. The EU has demanded that Google take Russia's Russia Today and Sputnik off of their off of their search results, that's happening. Only only uh, in Europe, right? They, they, you can still find has, it in the U.S. and only I, well, no, so far only in Europe. But they are going. But uh, they recently announced that they were contemplating just yesterday taking a step back in the rest of the West. Ah. so it may very well be that within a few days we are unable to find Russia today in America. They have a right to or be forgotten. Here in Costa Rica, where I am. So that's number. Yes. Uh, number two, Facebook and Twitter have actually begun deleting offending Russian tweets. You know, the Russian embassy said, we didn't bomb anybody in Meyerpool, which was a clear lie. And so they're taking them down. Facebook, in a volte face from its usual position against violence in violent tweets, is allowing people, at least in the Ukraine and Russia, to tweet things like, to post things like death to Putin. Because it is part of, uh, in their judgment, and I think correctly in their judgment, a legitimate response to Putin's aggressive war. Meanwhile, Russia in retaliation has asked its own courts to label Facebook and Instagram 
So all of the Instagram posters from Russia are going to be demonetized too, as terrorist organizations or extremist organizations and deplatform them on Russian platforms. They're also contemplating legalizing the theft of software as a way of retaliating against uh, Western companies. So, you know, a year ago, if you had told me that big tech would leap so violently into aggressive anti-Russian content moderation of whatever form you would you want to call it, I would have said you were crazy, that they would do anything that they could to avoid that. But they're not. They're jumping into it with both feet. And, and it's going to be really interesting because now they've set a precedent, right? What are they going to do about China and the Uyghurs? What are they going to do about Saudi Arabia, who just beheaded 81 people yesterday? I mean, there are lots of of really bad regimes out there. And once you start down the road, you're going to be left making, you know, distinction. Yeah, not to mention Republicans. Between, well, I Russia, mean, what are they going to do about Republicans? I'm because, sure that they're going to have the same view. <laughs> oh, come on. They're not going to do Republicans. That, that's you just trolling, Stuart. <laughs> but for legit, there's going to be a lot of different, there's going to be a push to, you know, get rid of China to, because it lies about the, I mean, the genocide of the Uyghurs is real. Well, isn't that isn't that perfectly <laughs> and, reasonable? Yeah, the, Chi- it, it, the, the Chinese are not letting them into China, so the only question is: Do we have this one-way uh, function where the Chinese can propagandize the West and uh, using all these tools, and the tools are not available to ordinary Chinese to improve the yes and no? I mean, yeah. Yeah. Apple's still Apple's still in China a lot. Microsoft Bing is in China a lot. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I just know the search engines, but at, the app stores are, are edited. Yeah, I mean, so maybe you're right. Maybe it's not going to hurt us as much uh, because we're already not in China that much. But boy, it's just a changed world out there. So let it's me ask really a, fascinating let me, to see. Let me push and, you on, on, on what we should be doing. The government made it very hard to stay in Russia by saying, you know, every time you turn around, you're dealing with a specially designated national, somebody who's been uh, blacklisted, uh, and you can't give them money, take money from them. You can't accept advertising. So they made it almost impossible. Indeed, there's an argument that's providing service in Russia to uh, those folks, letting them keep a Facebook account is a violation of sanctions. So we managed to kind of walk them toward cutting off service if we didn't force them. But of course, the consequence of cutting off service is that uh, one of the last places you could get news that wasn't written by Vladimir Putin is going to go away. And I want to ask the question, is if that's the wrong answer, why shouldn't the U.S. government be able to say to Facebook and Twitter, no, you actually have to make Voice of America and a variety of other things available to the extent of your capability inside Russia. And that would be hard, but not impossible. Uh, I don't think anybody's really tried very hard to overcome the Russian blocking in order to get this information through. They have a lot of information about people who would like to get that kind of feed. And maybe a little bit of mandatory action would work. I think there's a First Amendment issue there, but I'm just not sure that there's a First Amendment right to not speak to Russians. It seems to me there, the First Amendment is mostly about Americans and what is said and inside America and by Americans. And it would be a weird 
First Amendment argument that says, I have chosen for a lot of really good business reasons and, oh, yeah, my First Amendment rights to cut off uh, access to the truth in Russia. Wow, Stuart. Well, I, I mean, there's a lot. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack in there, Stuart. Almost none of it really makes that much sense to me. Okay, um, that's possible. To start with the most obvious, all of the tech companies are American companies. So forcing them to speak is, you know, is a direct implication of the First Amendment rights of Americans, albeit American corporations, you know, but they're the same corporations that have free speech rights to make contributions in the political sphere. So, so we ain't going to be able to force them to speak any more than we well, can. Well, force them to speak, so, force them to make available aside, certain data. This is not them speaking. It's a question of what data they're uh, going yeah, to well, suppress. Well, that's forcing them to speak, Stuart. Yeah, Stuart, I mean, yeah, if you force a, them to have them service, to speak. You're making right, them like, and you treat it as it's not speech related because they're just forced to do business in such and such a region, which I think is already then you would also presumably have to micromanage the algorithm for the feed so that they did not elevate Sputnik and RT and other Russian state-run <laughs> media there because that would kind of backfire. So I think you're getting into kind of a deep hole here, man. All right. Well, I, you know, I, I, yeah. I, I might be. I mean, I, the, the other part no, of it, though, ahead. well, I mean, the other part of it is that I don't know why. I, I think that the right answer, because I, I actually agree with your underlying premise, which is that cutting off Russian citizens from right. true information is to our disbenefit in a lot of ways. But the right answer is to is not for them to be forced to speak in Russia, but for everybody, including the U.S. government, to propagate as much as we can methods yeah. around Russian blocking. You know, we should be distributing free VPN services to everybody in Russia who wants it. We should, you know, every American company that wants to, and the U.S. government on its own should be, you know, uh, Breaking down, you know, the the Chinese fire, the um, Russian firewall, the Great Russian Firewall. Okay, so let them. Uh, you know, those uh, things, let, I think, let are me, truly governmental functions. Let, let, let me modify my proposal to say the U.S. government should take over the Facebook feed to Russia since they're not using it. Oh yes, Ex just expropriate it, yeah, without pay. I'm yeah, sure the I Defense mean, Production the, Act will cover that because it's it's property. <laughs> <laughs> yes, no, but it, but it's it's you'd have to pay. It would be a taking. Yeah, if they want right? to sue that, that, if they've got if they've got the guts to say you, you 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 you've cut off our really profitable business servicing in more ways than one, Vladimir Putin, and so we want to be paid for that. Yeah, okay, and maybe they would be paid, but uh, they weren't making any money. The you know, the value this of that. I don't think we could zero. afford it. This Stuart. makes me long for the days of shortwave radio and Voice of America being broadcast by the government into Russia without the need for expropriating private platforms and compelling speech from U.S. corps. Uh, yeah. Well, there, there's absolutely nothing that stops us from doing that too. That we can there? do. No, I, and I, I don't, I don't understand why we, we wouldn't do social media when you know that kind of thing was going on. Then in today, where so much of the yeah. communications yeah. infrastructure and all of the battle space for information wars and, and much of the cyber conflict is occurring in private sector owned and operated infrastructure. I mean, I don't know about Stuart's insane proposals, which are fun. But I think Paul's basic point is that more and more these companies are going to be drawn into these disputes, these geopolitical disputes, because 
on the one hand, things are getting less stable and more polarized worldwide and you know, more stark issues being presented. And number two, the private sector is just a bigger, more powerful, more significant player in the space of these geopolitical conflicts because of its infrastructure yeah. and capacities. Our, 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 our friend, our friend, so, yeah, our friend Clon Kitchen says, that they're going to have to choose a flag. Yeah. And I think he's right in the end. Well, is that Jane? true? So I, I thought maybe there was would be some value to changing the cultural debate and putting some social pressure on these companies, ironically, to stay and do what they can within the constraints of Russian law in order to not completely lose a connection to the Russian you know, residents. I, I mean, is there a non-legal but still social option that kind of gets yeah. pushes toward what Stuart was saying? I mean, that's How about this? How about this? Suppose we, they, Twitter and Facebook on uh, the mobile platforms have the phone numbers and the interests of all of their Russian subscribers. They know who already belong to groups that would want to hear factual information from Ukraine, and they have the phone numbers. So why don't we just ask them to give the phone numbers to the government so that the government can start messaging those people with, with DMs? We call that bulk metadata collection, Stuart. <laughs> <laughs> so you yeah, need a subpoena, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> okay. I, you know, look, I, I think maybe you could get support for that, notwithstanding. You're right. There, there is a question whether they could volunteer that. And maybe you could say, I'm investigating war crimes by Vladimir Putin, and I'm going to be asking for witnesses to come forward. And I need all of the phone numbers of people it, it, who might come Jane, forward. I don't know what law you actually, what classes you teach, but you've got at least five or six final exams just based on this stuff that Stuart has raised. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Here. Exactly. Yeah. Well, if, if not for law psychiatry, so I think I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So I will withdraw my suggestion or at least lick my wounds and return later. <laughs> I didn't think it was uh, so that Paul bad. Or at least if, if the proposals to force Facebook to, to host all content in the U.S., can survive First Amendment scrutiny, then I think I think you know yeah. your proposal it's, isn't okay. as crazy as David suggests. No, it's it's international must carry, right? Um, international from the good must old carry. Days. Yeah. Uh, so no, I just think it's, it's, it's fun. It's net neutrality. I don't, I don't actually even have a particular view on it. I'll be thinking about it all day, though, for sure. Um, that's the fun of talking with Stuart. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's always amusing. Okay. I will not suggest my idea that all of those Ukrainian refugees who are of draft age should, instead of being put into uh, refugee camps, be put into military training camps run by the Ukrainian government somewhere in Western Europe. I don't I quite know why we haven't done that, but I'm sure it's a violation of 16 international uh, uh, humanitarian treaties because it makes too much sense otherwise. All right, Paul, Kieran Martin had a, a pretty interesting discussion of the cyber war issues. Uh, and you know, I think everybody agrees, what cyber war, right? Uh, but Kieran's uh, always sober and well-informed, and I thought he had a pretty good discussion in lawfare of why we shouldn't relax. I, I think that's right. I mean, so far, the interesting story, of course, is that the truly extreme instanced instantiation of cyber war that we maybe sort of all expected we would see for, out of Russia just hasn't materialized. We haven't seen wholesale disruptions of Ukrainian critical infrastructure. We haven't even seen 
a really significant assault on Ukrainian command and control communications systems. And, you know, I, I number myself amongst the very pleasantly, but legitimately surprised by this, because I expected to see more. And there, you know, you can imagine all sorts of explanations for why, like he thought he'd win the kinetic war in two days, so why burn a whole bunch of cyber zero days? Two, the Russians may not be as good as we think they are, or the Ukrainians may be better than we think they are. Searing's uh, view basically is, you know, it's a kind of combination of all of those. It's uh, over-reliance maybe on criminal proxies who aren't as uh, well-suited as they might be to targeted attacking. It's Part of a lack of an ability to focus on infrastructure is harder to take down than, say, DDoSing a company or ransomwareing a a, a, uh, uh, a recumbent Irish healthcare system that doesn't do anything for its protection. What he suggests in the end is, you know, he has this wonderful quote from Winston Churchill about how, as the European land war ends. Churchill said that the age-old problems of Ireland in British politics would resume. He said, the whole map of Europe has been changed, but the dreary steeples of Fermanagh and Tyrone will emerge once again. Those are two counties in Ulster. Uh, And we're going to see, I think, as the war kind of, if not recedes, at least begins to turn to grinding, the dreary steeples of Western cybersecurity returning. You know, chronic digital in- insecurity and an inability of uh, broader Western corporations to, to protect themselves in ways that are important. So, you know, it, 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 he's kind of a ha- he and I think me and maybe you, Stuart, are glass half full, yeah, glass I, half empty. That makes sense to me. It's I, half I, empty. It's half full that we didn't really, you know, there was no cyber assault on a nuclear power plant that turned it into a nuclear meltdown. But it's not over yet. It it's is. It's really quite interesting question. There's going to be a great book to be read, written about this by, you know, somebody at the Army War College in five years. About exactly. The dog so one of the walk. things that's, that, that's worth noting about this, as, as Karen says, you know, these are these weapons that you can't just pick them up and fire them. You have to plan them. Each of them is an operation. And if they didn't plan for it, they can't just do it. And the people who are doing this are a limited resource. And if what you're worried about is a possible Ukrainian attack, then you have got those people worrying about that first and then thinking about their own attacks, worrying about a a Western attack. And then, of course, um, each side knows that they are at risk of a response that they won't like. And it's not clear you win much. But in the end, Putin is he's looking around for stuff that will add to the pain for the West, and this is a way to add to the pain. So I'm guessing we're going to see it again. Which brings us, I guess, to the cyber incident reporting uh, bill that just went through with the $1.5 trillion spending deal. That's appropriations language that has been passed. And we now have the entire cyber incident reporting bill. David, how big a deal is this? Um, I think it's a big deal that it went through. It's kind of amazing how hard it was to get it through. Um, This is mandatory cyber incident reporting to CISA, the DHS element from critical infrastructure operators within 72 hours of a quote-unquote significant cyber incident and within 24 hours of a ransomware payment. The exact scope and meaning of those terms is to be determined by CISA in rulemaking, but it is 
you know, a significant event in the development of mandatory cyber incident reporting, possibly with others to come. For example, the SEC almost immediately published a proposed rule requiring registrants to make reports to the SEC. Various foreign governments have incident reporting bills under consideration. And of course, uh, many of the 50 states may try to get into this space as well. So it's a crowded field, but this is a, a very significant event. This uh, cyber incident reporting legislation had been part of the Defense Authorization Act, which was a must-pass, and then it fell out at the last minute. And at that time, it was curious because sort of, you know, informed opinion was this is kind of a no-brainer. Everybody agrees on it. It looks good. And it wasn't clear exactly why it fell out back then. Now we do know because, and I'm sure this must have been a bit awkward, but both Chris Ray and Lisa Monaco found themselves speaking out against this bill in its present form, the one that just passed, saying, and I believe this is an actual quote, like, it will make us less safe. And that is because it calls for reporting only to CISA without parallel real-time reporting to the federal BI. And, you know, there's just something odd about that, I think, to, to those who aren't, you know, maybe neck deep in the inner agency, that Oh, it's more than neck deep, I'm guessing. Maybe yeah. <laughs> you have to be fully submerged. They, 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 they went definitely went under yeah. for the third time it on this a, one. Uh, that was that was such such a tantrum. It really was. Uh, it's and, and I think uh-huh. it and it and, and obviously not a cleared tantrum. They haven't run that I through don't know the what agency the and gotten was cleared. From they, OMB on uh, whether you're, yeah. <laughs> but it was. I mean, to literally say it makes us less safe. You know, look, I would very much hope that there will be electronic connectivity that allows for near yep. real time interagency reporting because investigation of cyber incidents you know which is something the bureau does is very important and they need to have real time access and so forth and, and and so on be able to act quickly and not depend on you know CISA sort of sending them a regular US postal mail you know notification on a piece of paper right but there, but for people on the outside looking in and thinking about the federal government and all this emphasis on unity of effort and you know bringing all the tools in the toolbox and the usual sort of you know inside the beltway clichés to see this is it's awkward and a little bit Cringy, frankly. So, yeah. but hopefully they'll work well, it out. And, and especially with the FBI, right? You know, you know, the FBI message was basically: we're afraid that they will con- constrain our access to this information the way we would constrain <laughs> theirs. <laughs> yeah. So it's anyway not so great of, of a look, I would say. But we're counting on our government to uh, work everything out behind the scenes and ensure that even though there's a single point of contact for reporting, there's immediate and smooth uh, transmission appropriately to other interested agencies with relevant responsibilities. And I myself am highly confident everything will go very smoothly from here on out. <clears throat> so I, I have one reason to, to, to have some question about that. This bill was jammed through, of course, had to pass right now. <laughs> We've got all these right. crises. And then, you know, I, maybe I'm wrong, but I see a real drafting problem. The reg that you said is going to explain to everybody what, you know, is a significant incident and who's a critical industry. The authorization for that says, first, you will get a proposed rule out in 24 months or less. And then you will, after you've done that, you will produce a final regulation in 18 months or less, which to me says they can't even go interim final. 
Uh, and so we may be waiting at least 24 and maybe as much as three and a half years to to see what the regs say, that's, which is just that's wild. wild. I think, I guess you're right. I hadn't really focused on that. And I, I wonder whether the FBI will submit comments. <laughs> yeah, I, no, you, you just lost know, all your right? friends. Uh, the, the last your, your time former we talked friends. about this, Paul, I think you were on and we both professed our affection to the federal BI, which we do love. But, you know, this was maybe not, not their best moment of PR. <laughs> I, I have I, – I, this is so in keeping with the worst of the FBI's yes. instincts. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they have great instincts yeah. most of the time, but this is so in keeping with Well, them. as I always say when I talk to clients, I say, you know, the, the FBI just has no doubt who the good guys are, uh, <laughs> and they really only recognize two kinds of people. There's there's agents and there's suspects. So <laughs> good. Unfortunately, I think DHS knows where they stand. Okay. Geofence warrants are a, a, a really – compelling law enforcement tool and it maybe for that reason they have really run into a storm of opposition and now for the first time we've got a federal judge who is signing up for a lot of that opposition jane can you walk us through the uh, chatry case yeah so so one really useful thing about this case is that the factual background was very well developed so i you know i'll describe how geofence warrants work generally because we have a lot of information now. So so basically when there's a crime where they have reason to think that um, the criminal was using a smartphone that may have had location detection or location data being being collected, which they did in this case, by the way, because Chatry robbed a bank, but when he walked by the surveillance cameras, he blocked his face using his Android smartphone. So it's <laughs> not a pro smartphone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't think we're going to see a lot of that in the you know coming years, um, as people understand what smartphones collect. But anyway, so when the police suspect that they might be able to identify a suspect using location da- geolocation data, they go through this three-step process, uh, or at least this is what they have been doing with Google. So first, they define a geofence. So they pick a radius and an amount of time. So in this case, this detective usually used 150 meters as the radius and one hour from the location of the incident as the time band. Sometimes in the past, he and you know other crimes that have been solved this way have used multiple locations where I assume, I would hope, that they use the kind of intersection of this. So, so so if there's a phone that's been at multiple locations during the relevant time, that would be even more evidence that they have something to do with the uh, to a series of crimes that are related. But in any case, this was just one crime, one bank robbery. So then what happened is a Google returned de-identified information showing the location of 19 individuals whose phones were tracked in, within that geofence. In step two, the police are supposed to narrow the target pool somehow. It's not clear to me how they're even supposed to pare it down. I mean, other than maybe the the information that they get from the location within that geofence, but that's not a lot to go on on its own. In any case, 
what happened here was the detective at first didn't ask for any paring down. He just said, okay, well, give me all 19, you know, give me more location data and the names of all 19 individuals. And Google said, oh, no, that's not the way this works. We, you know, you're supposed to pare it down. And then we give you some additional information about the geolocation of the pared down list. And then after you pare it down even more in step three, then you finally get de-anonymized information. So the detective then followed that protocol. They pair, he paired it down to nine phones. And then after seeing, uh, getting an additional hour's worth of location data on those nine phones, there was one that had the kind of uh, markers of the person who probably committed the crime. And, and then that person was re-identified and that was Chatry. So the so so that's the factual background. The question is whether, uh, there are multiple questions. One is whether all of this or any, which part of this constitutes a search under the Fourth Amendment at all? At what point does the government have to comply with some sort of Fourth Amendment requirement? And then what that requirement should be, whether there's what the warrant process should be. David, do you want to talk about the holding? Sure. I mean, I, I think you've done a great job. I'll put just a tiny bit of frosting on the first layer of that of that excellent cake. I mean, I think there's a couple of basic Fourth Amendment questions here. You know, the, the first is, and some of these are addressed by Oren Kerr, who wrote a nice little blog post on this um, yeah. as well. But the first is, you know, when you get this kind of geofence location data, is it in fact a search under the Carpenter decision. Everybody remembers the Carpenter case from the Supreme Court that said getting seven days of cell site location information on an individual is a search. Third-party doctrine of the traditional sort doesn't apply, even though you're getting these data from a third-party telephone provider. Here it's Google. And Oren has real questions, I think, and maybe some other people do, unlike this district judge, about whether this kind of geofence data from, from the Google is the same as the cell site location information from your telephone, you know, mobile telephone service provider. I mean, I, I have some doubts too. I think there's both a qualitative question, which a lot of people have focused on, meaning Google's location data aren't necessarily the same as the traditional cell site location information. I think there's a quantitative aspect as well, because Carpenter involved seven days and we don't know is the cutoff six, five, four, but this is, as Jane was saying, sort of one hour. And so for any one person, this might be distinguishable from Carpenter. If so, it's not a search. And at least at that critical stage, you've sort of solved a lot of the problems. The district judge here did not agree with Oren's perspective and did think it was a search. And so that raises sort of a second question, which is the particularity of the search meaning it's within a certain polygon shape or radius of a circle, as Jane described, and for a brief, relatively brief duration. There's, you know, some Supreme Court precedent that I think is relied on here, a, a case called Ibarra involving a search of a bar, in which the court said, you know, if you're going to go into a bar and search for drugs on the bartender, you can't just go and search everybody else and, you know, go through their pockets and stuff to find drugs on one of them, which of course they did, which is what led to the case. But I think this is, as again, Oren, I think, says, and as I think Jane agrees, this is not a search of people's bodies. This is a search of location records. And so then you can imagine kind of a multi-fact approach to the question of whether the warrant is really sufficiently particular. 
including things like the likelihood of a phone use by the bad guy here that was probability 1.0 because of the surveillance footage but the size of the polygon the duration of it and maybe the population density within i would not particularly smile upon a you know 1 hour 150 foot radius uh, geofenced warrant at a Billie Eilish where you have 10,000 10, people within 150 feet. My daughter will be thrilled that I mentioned Billie Eilish. So, but, uh, <laughs> I've seen the way she dressed. Really, it's a, it's a felony just <laughs> like, just there. Song, yeah, I see. Okay. So everybody's guilty. So there is no problem. The one thing I'll say on top of it and then pass it back over to Jane to sort of really be rigorous about this is I think this is an increasingly, increasingly fashionable law enforcement tool and you can sort of see why because if somebody knocks off the corner liquor store you know and you don't have a lot of lead information you can really get a jump start on your investigation by saying look there were 10 phones in that liquor store within the that straddles the actual robbery it's a help but i think there are now like routinely hundreds of these coming in every week to various providers uh, largely from state and locals but probably some additionally from federal. So it's an important tool, and I suspect there's going to be a lot more ink spilled on these issues going forward. Do you want to? Yeah, yeah uh, uh, I agree. And yeah, so the Carpenter decision, as well as Jones before Carpenter, the, in both of those cases, the majority of the court took great pains to describe how narrow their holding is, and they weren't quite ready to completely undermine the third-party doctrine. And, and so I was surprised to see how sort of flippant, I guess, the, the opinion was about those cases and just sort of presumed that the reasoning and logic of Carpenter would apply here. But one reason I, I find that frustrating is that this is a very different type of policing tool. So with Jones and Carpenter, the police had a suspect and they targeted this individual and track and got, went deep in terms of the amount of information they got about the individual. And that is a very discretionary process. So, you know, especially if these types of investigations can be done without any warrant process at all, it means that there doesn't have to be any particular level of suspicion or particularity. And so I understand why Jones and Carpenter, the, you know, the concurring opinions in Jones and the court in Carpenter wanted to put some limits on those styles of investigation. This is very different because it's a low discretion investigation. You start with the crime. You start with the facts of the crime. There's no one individual that the, the police are particularly interested in. So there's no, you know, there's limited opportunity for bias and and harassment. And that matters. And, that you know, the more accurate these Types. I, I, I think there are many open questions about yeah how many people, uh, who, how many people's phones and devices should be allowed to be sort of contained in the first, you know, the first stage of these types of investigations. But, but I think the police and the courts should be using these types of tools more often, precisely because they constrain discretion and, and are based on the facts of the crime. Yeah. I'd say, yeah. Jane, it, I like it, what it, the it point Jane just that... made a lot, I, and, I, and I gather you've sort of, you know, supported this approach in some of your scholarship. I mean, I think intuitively, putting aside the legal questions, it does sort of feel like, boy, if you reasonably bound the geofence in space and time and density, you know, it, it, it's both an effective tool, because as you say, it starts with a crime, and it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't. To, at least intuitively to some people, maybe I'm just a jackbooted thug deep down. But it, it, you know, going to a judge to get approval to do this, you'd think, 
would be a, a sort of feels like a reasonable mechanism, at least to me in some way, putting aside the legal details. So, I mean, I, I definitely appreciate what you just said, Jane, and I, I suspect that's how it'll come out, but it's hard to know for sure at this stage. Yeah. Well, actually, even the case itself has some clues about what the alternatives to this style of policing is, because in this case, before they used the geofence warrant, they had a couple leads. Someone called in, uh, one woman called the police and claimed that her ex-boyfriend must have committed the robbery. And so they went down that path and it turned out that it was just a vindictive, or I don't know, I don't know what the (laughs) reasoning was, but it was a false lead. And then a bank employee reported that someone else owned the right kind of car, a kind of car that matched the description of the getaway car. And that was a false lead too. So both of those people, they, you know, they had their information kind of focused on by the police as well. So, So this isn't really about whether innocent people can completely avoid the focus of the police. It's how many, and, you know, as David said, what kind of level of intensity or, or what sort of sensitivity of the information is going to be drawn up. Yeah. I, so it, what's interesting here is that Google in a, an act of, you know, kind of remarkable arrogance has just said, you got to have a warrant, even though it's not at all clear that a warrant is required. To, and here's how it's going to work. And this is all we're going to give you. Screw off. And for all its arrogance, they're doing law enforcement a real favor because it's very hard to argue with these procedures, which were written by a bunch of Silicon Valley lefties anyway. It, it, so I predict this will survive. I don't understand Judge Locke's deep lack of interest in upholding this. She was clearly determined to say it was illegal and then to find another way to uphold it so it wouldn't easily be appealed. But it seems to me that given that you start out with anonymized data, the idea that there's a problem with knowing the location of an anonymized person strikes me as close to preposterous. So there's a lot of stuff that uh, Google has built into this that is going to uh, help it stand up to judicial review. Okay. Let's go to cryptocurrency. I don't have a a segue for that one, uh, but there is a new executive order on cryptocurrency. And Paul, it looks to me as though it's basically an order that says, we're going to get serious about a digital dollar. And also, we ought to do a little bit of thinking about uh, cryptocurrency generally. I think that's right. I mean, in one way, this is a non, non-event, non right? You know, the executive order says thou shalt coordinate, which is pretty much what we've been saying for what government says around itself all the time. On the other hand, you know, you and I both know, Stuart, that when executive orders like this come out, it's not just thou shalt coordinate, but I really mean it. Thou shalt coordinate and thou shalt right. do so now. And thou shalt come back to me soon with real ideas. So this is the start of a process that I, you know, am uncertain exactly where it's going to end. I think you're right that there's some seriousness about a digital dollar. There's certainly seriousness. Uh, it evinces seriousness about trying to uh, demonetize illegal ransomware transactions, illicit, illicit funding transactions in some way either through better tracking or through prohibition or some such. There's a, a clear directive to Treasury and Justice to think seriously about how to um, you know, advance good cryptocurrency stuff uh, without permitting the bad stuff, which I tend to think is a bit of uh, squaring the circle regulatorily. Yep. There's also buried in here, I think, a, a likelihood of more uh, aggressive steps 
to kind of disrupt illegal cryptocurrency exchanges that may involve, you know, preemptive action by either by law enforcement in ways that are not really that clear right now, both in terms of tracking, you know, better tracking of cryptocurrency exchanges. And I think, frankly, we're likely to see things like prohibitions against Tumblr services that are really just money laundering by another name. But all of that is really just speculation for me. I think what's really, what this says to me fundamentally is that it's time for the cryptocurrency community to kind of come to the table, that they've often, you know, tried to hold the government at arm, U.S. government at arm's distance. And this is the Biden administration saying, well, yeah, you can do that, but then we're going to hose you. So come to the table and tell us what we can achieve together that would work. And I, I think that's a that's actually a pretty momentous. Yeah, the next year it's gonna there's gonna be a lot of action. It sounds like from the government as all of these proposals get vetted through the interagency. And you know, I, if this were the Trump administration, we'd just wake up one morning and there'd be a tweet saying, "Yeah, there's gonna be a digital dollar." <laughs> uh, so I'm not yeah. sure I want to wait for this entire interagency process to work its way out. But I also I'm glad we don't have the tweets. All right. I, yeah, I'm skeptical of a digital dollar that will that it will actually come to okay. fruition unless it's one that is directly tied to the you know backed by the full convertibility to to And that may dollars. be where we end up because they want to be able to say they've done it, they want people to have the convenience and they want to have the control because, you know, controlling the dollar is a big part of all the sanctions that we've imposed on Russia and you know we'll know in in 6 months whether that turned out to be a really good idea or not but it certainly changed the effect of the perception of effectiveness so Jane I want to come back to you another kind of standard lefty hate object in addition to Google geofenced warrants is artificial intelligence to identify criminal suspects and wired has a story utterly predictably finding what may be the only three men in America who have been wrongfully arrested on the basis of AI, though I can't say that for sure, but I'm sure that if there was a fourth, they would have included them in the story. What does this actually tell us about AI and its strengths and weaknesses? Yeah, well, not a lot. So I think it's specifically facial recognition AI, which is the, you know, at the center of the center of the resentment <laughs> for this, technology. This is, this is, this is, this is um, what, what they call one-to-many facial recognition, where you have a picture yeah, and yeah. You've, got, you've got a million possible suspects and you're trying to see which of them yeah. uh, matches. Yes, right. So the article, what, what the article I think does very well is show that there is a very heavy toll for people who are wrongly accused and arrested for crime. The Wired article features three African-American men, and it's not, not surprising that they're all three are African-Americans because they're at, at least, you know, a few years it's ago. Detroit. <laughs> it's, well, it's Detroit. So that's a big part of it. I was going to say the background, you know, sort of the, the background proportion of crime uh, and crime footage in Detroit would suggest that, but also... There was, you know, at least a few years ago, I don't know whether it's been completely corrected, but there, there was evidence that there were more false positive rates for African-American faces and I think female faces as well. And the article mentions that. But what seemed struck me as very unfair about the article is that people are arrested wrongly all the time and it's terrible for all of them. And so 
I didn't get a sense at all from the reporting what the appropriate denominator and nominator was, right? So I don't yep. know if, if facial recognition actually improves things in terms of reduce, it, it, it might reduce actually the number of people subjected to false arrest. There are uh, also the stories, the three profiles are very consistent with findings that when there are false arrests or false convictions, we know more about false convictions, but when they happen, it's usually because of government misconduct, that it's not the tool itself it's that the tool, whatever investigatory tool was used, was misused in some way, either negligently or, or intentionally. And the three examples are, are, you know, fit that profile that in all three, the, the police seem to rely with kind of blind faith, I guess, on, on the results of facial recognition. In one case, the uh, the man who was arrested had visible tattoos that would have been obvious in in the footage that they used to to match his his um, his identity and um, and so it's a good reminder I think that you know there there are criminal procedural problems like we we should care very much about accuracy in 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 criminal procedure and criminal investigation but it I was not convinced that AI is a worse tool than others that we use to 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 fight crime. Yeah, that's that's how it looked to, to me uh, as well. And there was one of the cases where the police officer said, well, yeah, I, I looked at it. The, it looked like the guy. So you can't say there was something wrong with the AI flagging somebody. Uh, and it does make sense to say, as the police department actually has said, we're not going to rely just on AI for facial recognition. We're gonna that's a, a basis for investigation. That's a lead. That's not the uh, evidence not of the uh, a crime. And I think that's all true. And yeah. if the police followed those rules, we really wouldn't have a lot to worry about. And I think the fact that there are only three stories like this, after what I'm sure is a concerted search by the ACLU and Amnesty International and uh, the Algorithmic Justice League to find more, it sounds like a lot of Police departments are following those rules pretty carefully because this is a politically controversial technology. Uh, I should say, I'm not sure whether this adds or detracts from its political contra controversy. It turns out that uh, Clearview AI, which is a well-known and somewhat controversial facial recognition firm, has said, by the way, we have like millions of young Russian male faces. And if the Ukrainians want to use our tool to figure out who the actual people are that they're oh, fighting or that they've killed. We can help you identify these guys, which means that when once you've identified them, of course, you can call their mom, which is a you know a really effective tool, I have to say, psychologically. And and so you know, on the whole, since I want Putin to lose and uh, Zelensky to win, I'm delighted that they're going to do that. Okay. Uh, Conti, the Conti leaks. You know, Brian Krebs wrote this story. He got deep inside the leaked files of the ransomware group Conti. And sometimes with Brian, I feel like he gets way deeper than I want to go. But his series on the Conti files is really yes, excellent. Super fun. It, David? Uh, this is, you know, maybe live by the cyber sword, uh, die by the cyber sword. For those who don't know, and, and I do invite folks to read the Krebs on security on this. Uh, he's got four good long posts on it. Conti's a Russian cybercrime outfit. Did some, it, it tends to go after big 
targets, meaning large entities with lots of money. It famously, I think, was involved in some hospital hacking and ransomware efforts. And it was going along and then praised the invasion of Ukraine, which then, you know, triggered a hack of Conti itself, resulting in, I guess, almost two years of internal messages getting leaked. And I believe, I haven't checked it out, but there's a Conti Leaks Twitter account. This has been called sort of the Panama Papers of <laughs> ransomware because it really shows you the inner workings here. And I mean, we could go on and on forever and I'm sure others will have comments. I'll just say what struck me is like, you know, Conti's run like a company. It's got dozens of staff. They're broken up into various divisions, coders, testers, admin. I didn't see a human resources division, but I'm sure there's that probably low on the legal compliance uh, scale as well. But they've got a lot of different groups. They have a five-day work week. They have payroll twice a month. Uh, you're, you're paid in Bitcoin, not regular bank. And they have all kinds of internal fights over you know, stuff ranging from significant to silly. And you know, even this group, which is very sophisticated, has pen testers and, and others constantly trying to figure out how to break through the security of large, you know, entities that will pay big ransoms turns out itself to be highly vulnerable to, to getting hacked themselves. So, you know, hackers going to hack. And as I said, live by the cyber sword, die by the cyber sword. So that's my quick take on it. <laughs> so my favorite, my, my favorite uh, piece of information from this is the, the guy who said, if we need to force one of these big companies to pay up, we have a journalist who will write a story about their leaked data in a, in oh, return for five percent of it. It is, and 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 I, I I offer that to our audience. If you want to do something about ransomware, let's let's just do a a search for stories written about leaked databases by the Conti Group. And see if we can't figure out who the journalist is, refer them to the Justice Department. I guarantee you the Justice Department would love to do a, a, a prosecution of a journalist who is extorting uh, money from ransomware victims. So this might be a discoverable identity. That's funny, Stuart. I thought uh, we were going to go the other way with that and uh, suggest a partnership with journalists who want to you know, write about the uh, Cyberlaw podcast. So, <laughs> oh, they could <laughs> I, give them 5% <laughs> of the take. I, yeah. Stuart never wants to uh, I would be glad to share 5% of the take here. Yes, exactly. Because yeah, the take consists mainly of abusive tweets. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, ICANN has a, a, a sort of well, ICANN is responding to some wacky ideas about how to deal with the Russians and proposing things that struck me as not especially impressive as a response to Russia's attack on Ukraine. And I kind of wonder whether maybe they're right. Maybe they they shouldn't be involved in this fight. It's just that it, it would be harassment, and it would kind of. Create disequilibrium in the internet, but you looked at that more closely than I did. What do you think of the various? Uh, I, I tend to agree. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I tend to agree. I mean, I can. The Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers are the guys who hand out the top-level domains, like .ru for Russia, and the Ukrainians have rather, you know, aggressively, you know, sort of said you should just take Russia off of the internet altogether. And dis disallow, disallow the .ru top-level domain. ICANN has traditionally seen itself as very, very neutral 
right? It it tries very hard not to take sides. That's why they the you can have a dot tw for Taiwan and a dot ps for Palestine. They're just like no, it it, it isn't our freaking job to to choose if it's an ISO two letter country code. We accept it. Period. Full stop. End of story. But uh, you know, nonetheless, they I think like everybody else in the West are under some pressure to try and you know be somewhat responsive to what everybody in the West does perceive as a completely unjustified war. And as you said, nobody wants Putin to win. Everybody wants Zelensky to win, uh, and rightly so. You know, uh, I mean, apologies to any of our Russian listeners who think otherwise. But fuck you, I don't care. Uh, That's okay. That's all right. But but I really don't. I I I really don't. But what they went through in, in some detail is a determination that most of uh, most of the suggested ideas, like re- revoking the .ru domain lane, just wouldn't really work. There's too many good workarounds as a technical matter. The two things that they did suggest were rejecting some Russian online certificating authority so that they would lose the ability to self-certify identification, which I think is a good thing. And then something that we've done before, uh, which is block listing or which is blacklisting blocks of IP addresses that we sort of know are associated with bad things. We do that already with spammers. We do that already with other clearly malcontent. And it strikes me as you could sanction the IP routes and traffic and domain names from groups of blocks that we know are associated, for example, with Putin or with the KGB or the FSB. And that would be effective. And it would be something we already do because it's not at a top-level domain. It's at a narrow, you know, these are bad people domain. So it's an interesting challenge. And, you know, it's it does, I think, reflect ICANN resisting very much being uh, made a tool of conflict. Yeah, I, I, I agree I with you. It's, it, it, apart from the blacklisting, which might be worth pursuing, uh, since they're cutting us off, maybe we should be cutting them off more. It's all pretty symbolic. I have one symbolic thought for a, a possible action. I noticed that one of the domains that apparently is still active, not just .ru, but .su, which has to be Soviet Union. And, you know, I, we've got somebody in the Kremlin who wants the SU back. We should just black hole everything related to SU. That that one should be handed over to somebody with a different, uh, a completely different name. Because uh, uh, we nobody wants the Soviet Union back, and we might as well say so. All right, Jane, uh, in 30 seconds, what happened that. to the Open App Markets Act and... Should we care? Probably, yes, we should care. So this is the narrower of two bills that that made it out of committee related to basically break, self, breaking up the duopoly. Self-preferencing? Yep. Yeah, self-preferencing, not only in terms of which apps are available on the apps, the two app stores, but also the payment systems as well. So, so Apple and Google would not be allowed to require apps to use their basically send a kickback <laughs> to, to each of their yeah. to each of them. This is narrower than the other. So this is the Blumenthal bill that made it out of committee. It it was nearly unanimous, only two dissenters. It's narrower and I think more carefully crafted than than Amy Klobuchar's. But there are still some lingering issues, whether this is, you know, whether sideloading, basically, this is like sort of requiring sideloading and, and requiring, well, just less, less discretion among the two major operating systems of our self, of our, 
um, smartphones to reject apps. And so is that bad for privacy? Is it bad for security? Is it bad for, you know, I don't know, your phone battery being wasted? Is it bad for apps that interfere with other apps? There are going to be a number of questions that are raised. And then on top of all of it, there's the parlor question, whether any of this has something to do with the fact that there may be different expectations of whether Parler could therefore sue Apple and Google for failing to allow their app to be on their cell phones. So, or so in there. I, well, I sure yeah. hope they do and I hope they win. But yeah, I think we're, we're a long way from this bill passing, but it is at least going to get to the floor. So that's, will, yeah, uh, which that will be interesting. It will be April, May or something. All right. Uh, and then two stories that I just couldn't resist. One, uh, the scientists are using AI to dis- decode what pigs say when they're wandering around their stall. They talk to themselves. They talk to nearby pigs. They grunt. They whistle. They whine. And the scientists think they can use AI to figure out what the what mood the pigs are in, which, you know, when you think about it, <laughs> isn't that hard. We all know what mood our dogs are in. And, and I'm waiting, frankly, for the ACLU to discover that these pigs are being surveilled 24-7 uh, and to object to the, to the intrusion on uh, porcine privacy. Uh, but it, it will be fun. AI, I'm pigs sure. Pigs have we'll rights too, Stuart. Pardon? I didn't. Pigs have rights too. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Pigs have rights. Exactly. This is like, it's not. You know, in 1984, but it is Animal Charles Farm. Yeah. is what it is to me. <laughs> yes, Wilbur. <laughs> That's some pig. <laughs> okay, and the last one, I, and I don't know what to do about this. Maybe it tells this us one. I think this you can last find one just something that fifteen percent of the people will do. <laughs> it does. Fifteen percent of the people admit that they have already had sex with a talking robot. Or they own one. I thought that was a great story. They were evenly divided between men and women in their enthusiasm for sex with robots. I'm just astonished. 15%. You know, you usually think uh, 15% is a not insubstantial number, but I'm guessing I don't know anybody. Well, maybe, well, who knows, who's actually had sex with a robot because I find that, you know, we're a long way from robots that you'd want to have sex with. At least I think so. The, the, I'm not going to ask anybody to comment on The only on comment that. I'll make is <laughs> well, to put in a plug for the movie. All right. I think it's Go called ahead. Her with Joaquin Phoenix and Scarlett Johansson, which I saw several years ago. I think it came out in about 2013. It's a kind of an interesting... Well, if we're talking Scarlet, that's a very different proposition. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I'll put in a plug for David Levy's book, Love and Sex with Robots. We are right on track with his thesis, which is that by 2050, I thought it was 50%, but I guess a a large proportion of Americans will be either in love with or having regular romantic sex with a robot. That's the... I'm guessing romance I can see. I I mean, I think... (laughs) You can see romance uh, more than sex? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> yes. Stuart, Stuart, does does your wife listen to this podcast? Um, I, I just want to. She's, she's not going to miss this, this one. I, think. <laughs> I really would not let her listen to this one. Yeah, ne- not let her listen oh, to boy. this one, please. Okay. <laughs> Let's leave it there. Okay. All right. Speaking as your friend. <laughs> All right. Moving right along. Thank you, Jane and Paul, for joining us. Uh, Everybody, please check out the show notes or the blog posts on Steptoe.com or The Volat Conspiracy for the details on 
our March 28 live session at noon. So if you want to see us live, want to see us turn red and embarrass ourselves even more than usual, this is your opportunity. March 28, we're doing episode 400 alive and on the air, and we'll probably take questions. So I've already gotten several suggestions that people will be tuning in for the heckling, and there probably will be live heckling. So look forward to that as well. I want to thank Weissman Sound Design for our music, and this has been episode 398 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you.